Welcome to the Evoke Inspire podcast with me, Sarah Jane Tobin, proudly sponsored by hermoney.ie. Hermoney is your trusted partner in financial empowerment, catering specifically to professional and self-employed women. Join us as we dive into inspiring stories of entrepreneurship, personal growth, and the world of finance. Hermoney.ie's mission is to provide women with the knowledge, tools, and confidence to thrive financially and in life. Today, I'm sitting down with Sally Ann Clark. This lady is one of the most recognizable names in the food and beverage industry in Ireland. Together with her husband, Derry, she's revolutionized the industry for both the quality of their restaurants, but also their unusual work practices. I suppose first thing I wanted to start off with you, Sally Ann, is people know you mostly from um, your restaurant business, your restaurant career, but you have a multitude of things behind you, one of which is one of my passions. And I wanted to find out a little bit bit more about your experience in radio. Radio was my first love, probably will always be my first love. Well, um, and if there's ever an opportunity, I'd go back to it in a heartbeat. But I started off, um, I was doing my intercert and they were advertising for DJs on the radio. It was Capital Radio, Chris Barry in those days. And um, it was a bet, to be quite honest with you, uh, (laughs) with girls in school. And I went in and I was there for, gosh, about seven years. Mm. So I was 15 when I started and I would go in to do my programs in my school uniform because it was cheaper rate on the buses. (laughs) I'd have to pay full rate coming home, but um, I'd bring in my records, bring in whatever. And um, in fairness, Chris was a very good teacher. And it was a great experience. And, you know, it was like all the neighbors would be listening, all your friends would listen. Uh, I used to do Friday evenings and Saturday evenings. And then when I got a little bit older, I used to work for fill in for people on holidays um, fill in for people who were uh, wanted different days off and wanted whatever. There wasn't really any money in it, but it was actually good fun. Yeah, I think that's the thing that I kind of found about the industry. People who are involved in it tend to do it purely for the love more so than for the money. But I mean, you yourself, you, your parents were involved or, or interested rather in radio as you were growing up as well. And my mom and dad always had the radio on mm. and they always reckoned, I mean, even in Ireland still, radio is the go to. Mm. So you can't rewind it and you can't fast forward it. It's what's happening there and now. And um, I mean, there's so many different facets of radio as well that you can do. And I used to enjoy obviously being a DJ and then you could do different programs where mm. you could do a little bit of talking, a little mm. bit of interviewing. Um, there was um, my mom's cousin used to live up the road and uh, herself and her husband were always at loggerheads and I remember um, playing um, uh, Cliff Richards we don't talk anymore and she <laughs> rang the station and she said we shouted each other regularly and you know you had a bit of fun in yeah. those days and you could do things like that and then I went on to do um, I went on to work in for Ford for a promotion they did. They were just opening the ILAC Centre. And again, I was a DJ. I was working um, like I'd do six days on, two days off. And again, I got to interview all these lovely people um, like Tony Jacklin, mm. like Joanna Lumley, like um, wow. different people that the, the actual interviewer would come in. But you'd be doing the warm up. And that was because I had the radio experience and mm. I did the show rule and Alex said, OK, you get in, you do the warm up. And then when the crowd starts getting thicker, I'll step in and I'll do the rest. So I got to do all these things that I would never have done if I hadn't taken that chance when I was 15 yeah. and went ahead and, and did it. Um, so then I um, Treble TR were just up the road from us. My dad was a big fan. I'm, I mean, I like some country and Western music, but it wouldn't be. <laughs> 
It is, a ta- could... it is something that is a, it's very specific taste for you. Yeah. Very some specific. of it I love, some of it, you know, but to present a program wouldn't mm. be my cup of tea. Right. So on my showreel, um, there was me reading the news. So I read the news for them for, oh, I don't know, four or five years. I used to get up early in the morning before I'd go to work and uh, read the news Monday to Friday. If they were stuck on a Saturday or Sunday, if I wasn't helping my mom in the shop mm. and I used to do all their voiceovers and stuff as well. And it was, you know, do their jingles, do whatever. It was just really good fun. And yes, you made a few quid along the way and yeah. it paid for all the little extras, paid for your car, paid for your insurance. And um, it was just something completely different to what I was doing during the day. I think what's uh, what's really interesting, and it's probably just because of how I know you and stuff like that. But to, to hear you talking about your experience in radio and stuff like that, obviously it bled into other facets of your life and it had had like you'd never think that a restaurant or hospitality sector would have much to do with radio but it kind of does between discipline I think you would have had to be very disciplined even like as you were saying about reading the news and stuff like that that's a tough gig and that that requires a lot of self-drive and stuff like that right but in those days you had to write it first and then read it so you did have to have some skills where you know you, you needed to be um, you needed to be able to put a paragraph together. You needed to be able to par- mm. uh, to punctuate it properly. You needed to get to the headlines. And we, we had three minutes in those days. Mm. And and then, as I said to you earlier, we used to have to do the weather. And it was always about <laughs> if there was a drying, if it was a drying day. And I got myself into trouble on that one more often than not when I said it's a good drying out yeah. today. And it would pour <laughs> out of the heavens. But, you know, I went on then to work um, for Nova on a while. Then I did Kiss FM. And then I ended up in Leinster mm. for a couple of years. And again, it was all a couple of, you know, two nights a week, maybe, and or maybe a Sunday afternoon, Mm. depending on what they needed and depending on what I was available for. And I just really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. So, well, I think like as well as the discipline aspect, there's also the antisocial hours as well, because I know myself when I worked in radio for a long time, I was working breakfast hours and you would be kind of heading in like to sit down and actually be reading at 6 a.m., whereas most people are probably turning over for their second sleep at that stage. But in the restaurant industry, I suppose it's a little bit like that as well, that you do work the antisocial hours. You do work antisocial social hours but I mean it depends on how sociable you are and then you tend to um, I mean I still have still have the same friends I went to school with Wow, and they understand fantastic. they're all wonderful but then you make friends with people who are in your industry mm. so they understand and you know it's after work or it's um, like one of the big days for us in Le Crevan was a Monday you'd mm. have everybody in the catering industry in because most places closed on a Monday mm. um, we used to open on a Sunday because that was the day we took our family out and our kids out so um, Sunday and Monday were those days where you'd bump into everybody else yeah. that were doing the same hours as you were and, um, and again I know it's uh, anti-social but it's actually a very sociable industry. Yeah, well, like, I suppose that's something I never really kind of thought about. It is kind of like a little, I wouldn't say, it's like a little gang almost. It's like a community on its own as well. Because you guys, you know, as you say, Sunday and Monday is like everyone else's Saturday, Sunday for you guys. Yeah, it's like if you go out on a Tuesday night or a Wednesday night um, because you know you need to work Thursday, Friday, Saturday and uh, that's your night out Mm. and that's that's what you do and God knows who you'll bump into. But the other thing is the catering industry had a reputation for being quite, you know, bitchy and whatever. It's not. Everybody is very good. Everybody will, you know, unless there's, you know, rivalry that will never um, you'll never get over, which I haven't really seen, to be fair. But people tend to if you're if you have a question or you need some help or there's something going on or you know that a member of staff that you've got there's something not quite right and you know they've worked in X, Y and Z before you can pick up the phone you mm. can ask without putting anybody under um, um, in, how would you say 
without putting them into a, a difficult position. Yeah. So um, and again, because the industry is quite tight and because everybody works so hard and the margins are not that great, you don't want somebody else being um Taken advantage, advantage of. Yeah. yeah, I think that's something that, you know, I think a lot of people, we were discussing this earlier, that there's, there's a perception about the hospitality industry. And I think you've just shown just there now that or you've spoken just there now about how people can be wrong. But, you know, over the years and, and your experience working within the hospitality sector and catering, what, how have you seen, you know, things that have, have changed, like how people have changed, have attitudes changed towards like workers, front of house staff, um, kitchen staff? Well, we had a very short or very small turnover in Le Crivan. I mean, um, all the guys used to call us Hotel California. They'd say you check out, but you never leave unless somebody was really, really, you know, bad or did something that mm. they shouldn't do. Um, we tried to do an exit interview and find out, you know, why they were leaving and what, you know, what what their um, ideas were. Mm. And um, basically to see, was there something that we should have done to keep them yeah. or was there something that they particularly wanted to do that they just wanted to move and it was to find out that um, yes people want to move on people want to move upwards and people want to get more experience but to actually sit down and a lot of places don't do it which I don't understand mm. so you interview people when you're taking them on for a job mm. and you you take them in on probation and you do whatever and if you've had them for a long time and you've had a really good working relationship and then they come and they give in their notice out of the blue it's not just a case of oh they're leaving us it's a case of okay why are they leaving and you know yeah. what can we make better or what is the reasons and if it's just because they want to move up and they want to work in a two star as opposed to a one star Michelin or they want to move to a different county or a different country that's fine but you, you need to know these things you need to keep abreast Has there been like I mean you, I, I've only ever done one exit interview in my entire life and I don't actually know because I never really kind of followed up to see if any of the suggestions I made were implemented or anything like that but did you ever get anything that you really kind of thought God I never thought of that or you know, you find out things from people at an exit interview that they'd probably be afraid to tell you if if, for example, somebody was being a bully mm. or if there was something untowards going on that you didn't know about, um, you'd find all that out at an, ex an exit interview. It's actually a very good idea to do it, no matter what. Mm. industry you're in because you'll find people will tell you things when they know they're leaving that they would never tell you while they're working there Wow! Yeah. and uh, it is an eye opener um, sometimes they can say you know well we, we used to uh, and if somebody comes up to me and says we um, used to do it this way in my last job and I say well if we haven't done it before, we'll give it a try. If not, we'll say, listen, we have done that, but maybe we can compromise. I mean, there's no I in team. Yes. And Derry and I couldn't have done what we did all those years on our own. You need a good team around you. You need to build a good team around you. And it's not money that keeps people. It's, yeah. it's terms and conditions. It's being part of that team, letting them know that they're a valued member, letting them know that, you know, you couldn't do it on your own. Yeah. And, um, there's different ways of pushing people's buttons. Um, so, you know, if you've got somebody that's straight out of school, really cocky and wants to be head chef straight away, you need to actually sit them down and say, OK, you have to go through X, Y and Z before you can even dream of becoming uh, a chef de partie as opposed to a sous chef. And there there are, you know, ways of doing it. You don't just come in and say, OK, I know everything. Yes. And I mean, we all know when we were 16, 17 and 18, thought we, we, we all. all thought we knew it all. <laughs> My mom used to say, why don't you go and get a job now? Well, you know everything. Sure, because by the time not? you're 21, yeah. you'll know. <laughs>
absolutely nothing. <laughs> oh, I think that's what we all say from time to time. I always wanted to be a grown up. Now I'm a grown up. <laughs> Send me yeah. back to school just for a week. I need a holiday. So, you know, you can praise somebody to get the most out of them. Yeah. And there's other people that you have to actually sit down and go, listen, you know, you're too full on, you're too whatever, and you catch more flies with honey. So it's to find <laughs> out what works with different people and to see what makes them tick. And that really comes with age. Yeah. And it's um, something that you you figure out as you go along. I suppose that's the thing you were talking about, you know, building a, a team and building the right team as as uh, as your you know, business evolved over the years and stuff like that. You've obviously picked up quite a few handy tips for how to identify someone that fits in with with your your team ethic. Well, you know, when I started out with Dairy First, there was one or two chefs along the way that would refuse to speak to me because I hadn't come through the cert route. I hadn't wow. done the waiters okay. exams or I hadn't been to Shannon. I hadn't been whenever. As I say, I did a degree in marketing. I did the insurance exam. So as far as they're concerned, I wasn't qualified right. to be there. I was the chef's wife and story and it was quite difficult because I didn't want to rock the boat. I was mm-hmm. 26 years old. I'm trying to help my husband, trying to make sure he's, you know, he's fulfilling his dream. And then you come up with these difficulties. So as I got older, it was, you know, um, no matter what you do and no matter what experience you have, it will always stand to you in some point of time. I mean, education's no load to carry. So I tended to look at people's qualifications, but I could I would rather hire somebody with a personality and teach them the way we do it, because everybody has their own way Mm -hmm. of doing it. You can't teach people to have a personality. You can't teach people to be welcoming and kind and whatever. But if they have that in them and they want to learn, they're the best people as far as I'm concerned. Obviously, you get the people that are our career waiters, managers, chefs, what not, and they know what it takes. But yeah. when you've got somebody starting out, if they've got a personality, if they're a cheeky chappy or they're <laughs> a girl who's willing to go that little bit extra and, you know, wants to learn, they've, in my um, experience, have worked out really, really well. Right. So like you wouldn't, you know, I suppose going out to a restaurant and stuff like that um, and somewhere like Le Crevient, where it's it's quite high end and stuff like that. There is there, you know, any sort of personality that you kind of go, oh, no, that's definitely a no, no for this kind of establishment, but it might work in a burger joint down the road. Yes, there are. But I mean, again, you'd give them a try if they were that willing. You'd say, OK, we'll take you in. I would never take somebody out of a job. I'd get them in to try out first. OK, yeah, that's and a good And then, idea. you know, you see, so at least you're not leaving them high and dry. Yeah. Um, and then there's people who've come from coffee shops. There's people who've come straight from school. There's people who had jobs in the pub as lounge boys, lounge girls. And, you know, once they they know what the hours are and as I say, they have that personality and they have that little bit of get up and go, they usually work out really, really well. Yeah. And all you got to do is encourage them. And then when they see, you know, the money that they're getting and they see the tips that they can get. Um, and I mean, hospitality is um, about welcoming people. It's mm. about making people feel at home. And obviously there's some rules. So I always told them there's a, an, um, an invisible line that you don't cross. If somebody mm. asks you to converse, asks you a question, by all means, whatever, but don't stand talking to them all night. They came out to be with each other, not with you. Yes. So there is that line that you don't cross. There's nothing more annoying. Well, it does happen. And again, yeah. it's because somebody's not there training them. Somebody's not there watching them saying, listen, you know, tap on the back saying I need you in reception or there's a phone call for you or whatever, just to get you away mm. and let these people enjoy their evening. So there's always those little things. And I find in restaurants now staff is a problem. 
really? mean, during COVID, a lot of people have done different things. Yeah. They discovered that they didn't have to do the unsociable hours anymore, that they yes. could get a job <laughs> working nine to five, Monday to Friday, where, OK, they didn't have the same amount of money, but they could live on what they were getting. So mm. they thought, well, why would we go back to working Friday and Saturday nights? Why would we go back to not having a social life? So there is a shortage. And then you've got all these kids that never had a job during COVID that are really anxious to work. Mm. And they're absolutely amazing. You yeah. Know? So but all they need is a chance mm. and I'm all for giving them a chance and teach them. And as I say, if you show somebody more than three or four times how to do something, you know, they're not going to work out. Yeah. And you let them down gently and say, maybe this is not suitable for you, but you don't want to crush them. You don't want to tell them that they're useless or anything else. It's just maybe this is not suitable. Maybe the kitchen would be better. Maybe housekeeping yeah. would be better. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But don't crush them. Don't, you know, because I wouldn't be where I was if I didn't get the opportunities I got. Well, this is the thing. I mean, you're talking about um, chefs giving you a hard time when you first started out because you didn't have the same, the exact same qualifications and stuff. I mean, you, you must have some horror stories yourself to actually have arrived at that decision that, you you know, always give somebody a chance. Well, I, my parents were in business. So my mom had a boutique and my dad had a news mm. agent. So we always worked. Derry's parents were in the food industry. So his dad was um, a food importer and his mother's family were fruit importers. Okay. And they always worked and there was always a job and there was always whatever. So I suppose we were lucky when other people were looking for jobs for the summer in school. We already had one. Yeah. Sometimes it was like, oh, God, I wish I didn't. But mm -hmm. that's the way it goes. So we worked for other people over the years where I wasn't treated very well. He wasn't treated very well. And it got to the stage. OK, fine. You want to open up your own restaurant. Now's the time. You're not being treated very well. You're not getting the, you know, um, should I say the rewards that you deserve. Now's our time to do it. Mm -hmm. And we'd both been in a position where we had been made to feel less than human, for want of a better description, in our jobs. And we made a conscious decision that we would never do that to anybody that worked with us. Mm -hmm. So we always said we wanted um, Indians, not chiefs. And that's what I said, there's no I in team. And if you work with your team, you get so much more out of them because you're, you know, it's like if somebody has an accident in the toilet, I took my turn cleaning it like everybody else. It wasn't OK, get a kitchen port or get whatever. And, you know, people mm -hmm. say about um, teaching, uh, teaching the younger people how to do it. If they know that I'm going to get in and do my turn and you're going to do your turn, they have no problem doing this. Yeah, very true. And it's it's all again, monkey see, monkey do. Very true. I suppose like that's the thing I wanted to kind of ask you about next is like when you were starting up your own business yourself and you, you know, you were kind of cutting your teeth, so to speak, and you did come up against some obstacles. I mean, what how did you overcome them and what would be the advice you give yourself looking back now? With with all your years experience behind you, maybe not to take myself so seriously. Oh, really? And okay. not to try and be perfect all the time because mm. that's impossible. Yeah. Like I remember one time they were stuck and I went in to help and I was heavily pregnant and I'd never silver served anything before. And the potato I was serving went into a lady's handbag oh, and she picked up the plate and she put it on her head and she said, do you think you could get it on the plate this time, darling? And oh I, I got it on the plate. I did. But I just collapsed laughing. So <laughs> it's like, you know, it was I thought this was hilarious. She obviously didn't see the funny side of it. Yeah. <laughs> but there's all sorts of things like that that happen and, and people make mistakes mm -hmm. and we all make mistakes. No matter how much experience you have, you still make mistakes, you know, 
things go wrong. We're all human. But it's to see the funny side of it as opposed to seeing that it's a disaster mm. because it's not a life or death situation. It's not like you're in a, a hospital um, emergency department where whatever you do is going to decide whether this person lives or dies. Mm. This is not those sort of life changing decisions. So I think what I would say is don't take yourself too seriously and don't get upset when things don't go you know, exactly the way to plan. Like I remember, again, early days, this lady came in with her family for her birthday and she left most of her main course behind. And I was, you know, thinking, mm, if I bring that into dairy, he's going to know, did you ask? Is everything OK? Yeah. You know, was it cooked enough? Was it this? Was it that? So um, I'd asked all those questions and it was, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she said, could she take it home? But her hairdresser and our hairdresser at the time were sitting sitting at another table and he said to me, what's wrong with you? And I said, I feel really bad. It was that lady's birthday. She hardly ate anything. Mm. He said, darling, she forgot her bottom teeth. <gasps> so, oh, no. <laughs> you know, it's kind of all those little yeah. things that there's always something there's always and you have to see <clears throat> the funny side of it. Of course, of course. Yeah, you really do. I mean, like when you were starting out um, yourself in Derry, like was there anything that, you know, um, you wouldn't have you wouldn't think as an entrepreneur, as a, as a startup, that there's, you wouldn't think that would be absolutely necessary, but it actually is. And you found out the hard way. Um, I think you need to be able to deal with all people because there's always, you know, the one who'll come in and say, I can buy that wine in O'Brien's and I can buy this. So you had to have an answer. It was like, OK, by all means. But I said, who's going to open it for you? Who's going to serve mm -hmm. it for you? Who's going to, you know, set the table and put the polished glasses on the table? Who's going to pour it for you? I said, that's what you're paying for all these people and sitting in a really nice surroundings. So you had to have answers. And these were things that we discovered as we went along. Mm -hmm. You know, where people knew that I, I was Derry's wife in the beginning and would say, you know, well, I can get that for this. And sometimes you'd like to say to him, well, off you go down to O'Brien's, but you couldn't mm. do that. So um, you had to learn to say, OK, you know, um, I take your point, but you're in here for dinner. I said, so who's going to give you the wine that you buy in O'Brien's with your dinner this evening if you don't buy it from us? And I said, we have to pay our heat, our light, our electricity, our rent. Mm. Obviously, we have to pay our staff. And we have to make a margin on it. And it's like, mm, you're very smart, aren't you? And I said, no, I'm not being smart. Oh, you I'm had just, that said to you. Oh, yeah. I said, I'm, I'm actually giving you the truth. I said, you asked a question and I'll always try and answer it. You I know? think um, I think that's actually very interesting that you say that, because I think when women, I, I, I don't know now, obviously, I wasn't, you know, I, I haven't worked front of house in a long, long time. I kind of did it very, very briefly when I was, I suppose, 18 or 19. And I did encounter some rude people who said some smart arse things, smart aleck things. But um, I mean, did you, how do you kind of cope with that? I suppose as, as a woman, we're kind of expected to just, you know, be silent and smile and. No, I was okay. never brought up that way. Um, as I said, I worked behind the counter in the shop with my mom from the time I was seven. I worked in the news agents with my dad. My brothers used to do during the week. We'd mm. do every other Sunday. And again, if somebody was being smart, you wouldn't be rude. Would you say, OK, if you don't like whatever we're doing and you don't like, I said, well, you know, there's plenty of other places you can go to. But this is what we do and this is how much we charge. Yeah. And my mom and dad always said, you know, you don't. The customer is always uh, the customer, but they're not necessarily always right. Wow. And okay. nobody should be rude to anybody. And particularly if they're young and they're inexperienced. I do think that we're all um, very quick to judge. Mm. I think it's part of the social media thing as well. Oh, really? Um, yeah. I do think, yeah, everybody's very quick to judge because as 
so many other things going on. I mean, we were a Michelin star restaurant in the middle of Dublin and um, we had very high standards. We kept our star for what even the year we closed, we got our star again. But we always wanted to be um, the friendly face. Yeah. We always wanted to say, well, you know, we appreciate you coming in and we know that we're not the cheapest restaurant on the block, but that you are getting value for money. And I think, again, people need to know that they're getting value for money. Everybody knows the cost of of things these days, but do they know the value? Yeah. And I think that's a very important um, distinguish distinguishing mark to make. I think what you're saying there about La Criviana, it was the, it's the only Michelin star restaurant that I've actually gone into, eaten, had a really nice experience and not been a little bit self-conscious. Well, that was what we didn't want it to be. Mm. We wanted it to be. Uh, I mean, we didn't start out with a Michelin star. Mm-hmm. Within a couple of months, we got a bib gourmand and then we got different things. And then they came in. We were doing renovations and, you know, we told them we didn't want the bib gourmand anymore because you had to have specific menus and you had to have whatever. And I remember this man saying, you know, you're very stupid. You'll never get a star. This is not the way to go about oh, right, it. Okay. And I said, but this is our <laughs> decision. And I said, we've you know, this is what we've come to. And I, I did say to him, I said, you've got to respect that. And it was like, you know, okay, we were Irish, we were running a French restaurant, we were doing whatever. And this guy from the UK thought we were, you know, basically told me we were stupid and we were very short sighted. We We got our star two years later. Wow. And it was a case of, you know, we just stuck with our guns and we stuck with what we knew and we did what we wanted to do. So we always wanted to have a fine dining restaurant, Mm -hmm. but we wanted to do it our way. We didn't want to be you know, too formal, too stuffy, but we still wanted to deliver. And as I said, what I always said to our our guys front of house was we're informed informality. Mm-hmm. And that's why I come back to that individual line again. The, sorry, the invisible line again that, you know, if you're invited to cross it, do. But if you're not, don't that you don't know whether people are talking business, whether they're having a row, whether they're out for a romantic meal or not. And I said, you you have to, you know, gauge all that when they walk in. You have to see as well when people walk in the door, whether they're in good form or bad form. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if somebody walks in and I'm going, hi, how are you? And they're standing looking at you. Is, is, is everything OK? No. But as soon as I find something wrong, you'll be the first person to know. Oh. So they're the ones you <laughs> kill with kindness yeah. and you make sure they have a wonderful evening. And again, that comes with age and experience. You were just talking there uh, briefly about um, the year that the restaurant closed up and stuff like that. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was like for you? Well, we we'd made the decision to close mm-hmm. and um, then, of course, COVID hit. Yes. And that was an absolute nightmare. And we had um, people that had booked and had vouchers and had different things. So we decided to stay open to make sure people could use up their vouchers, yeah. that they could come in and, you know, have one last one last supper, one mm. last meal. And obviously we're closed and we're closed and we're closed. So it was a bit of a nightmare. Um, we were going to do uh, another restaurant down at Temple Bar, which fell through again because of COVID. But Derry always wanted to do something more casual. Yes. And, you know, and at this stage of the game, you know, I'm I'm easy to go with the flow. I mm-hmm. would like to. I've always done my own little bits and pieces. And um, we just felt that it was time yeah. and that we'd done what we'd done. We, we, we wanted to leave at the top of our game. Yeah. And, and you, you know, most certainly did. I mean, well, I don't like you haven't left, but that was well to leave Le Crivan yeah. and, and that was the plan. And even when people couldn't come in, um, I came up with this idea that, OK, we'll give people their wi- wine instead, because the Money Laundering Act means if you get a voucher, I can't give the money back to you. 
you ha- I have to give the money back to whomever you bought, bought okay, the voucher for yes. you. That's all part of the 2010 Money Laundering mm-hmm. Act. So because people didn't want to go back to the um, the givers, for want of another description, uh, to say we didn't get around to using it, um, I offered them wine. So I sent them the wine list and I said, you know, take what you want for the wine list. I'll give you a reduction on it. So during COVID, different Fridays, I just had lots of bags with different names on them. So people got wine for their vouchers. Mm. People got so we were trying to be fair with everybody too. Yeah. Um, all our staff were very loyal and they all stayed on. Everybody got paid. Everybody got their redundancy payments. We were a real, really tight knit family. Yeah. And it was a lovely, lovely group. I suppose like at that time, it was so unprecedented and stuff like that. But you guys had a good plan and you had a good structure in place. You had kind of an idea that, you know, if ever something happens, you you always kind of had a, a safety net, shall we say. Well, we had put the money to one side right. to close up. So we didn't want to walk away and go um, bust or go into liquidation mm-hmm. like lots of people do. Um, what do they say? The... Uh, the most comfortable pillow is uh, the one where you've got a, a light conscience. So we'd made the plan. We wanted to execute it. And unfortunately, COVID, we didn't get the kickback we'd hoped for because of COVID. Yeah. But we were lucky enough that we had business interruption insurance. And that's what helped us walk away clean. Wow. And again, it covered us for what was going on in China. And I'd say we were probably one of the lucky ones in the country after mm-hmm. seeing what went on and, you know, seeing what people were covered for and what they weren't. It doesn't make any sense to scrimp on that kind of thing when you're in business. No, no, no. And again, we had it for a year as opposed to three months. We had it for whatever. And again, that's going back to my background in the insurance industry. Mm-hmm. It's going back to my background with my parents and that insurance was so important and you had to make sure, you know, and it was like health and safety. We were very, very strict about health and safety. And again, people thought we were a bit over the top, whatever. But it was it was for their health and safety as well as ours. Yeah, and sure. I think that's very important. And again, all these kids that are coming in, they could be your child, my child, mm. anybody's child. You wouldn't want anything to happen to them and you wouldn't want them to be exposed. Absolutely. To anything that they could possibly. And I mean, sharp knives, burns, mm. all those sorts of things. You want to minimize anything that you possibly can. And um, and I think, again, a lot of the people that we had working for us, their parents appreciated it because they knew we were going to mind them. Mm. And um, it definitely was very happy family. I suppose I wanted to ask you a little bit about Sarah May and her career, because she's li- she's living quite an exciting life in the sense that her 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 job is busy. It's the kind of thing that when, you know, you sit down and you say to someone, oh, you work in events like that sounds so. And do you think you guys had any sort of an influence on her growing up? Because, um, I mean, hospitality as well, like it's another one of these industries that people kind of are a little bit in awe of in the sense that they're kind of like, oh, you must, you know, have a little bit of a glam background. Well, people say it's glam, but you work very hard. Yeah. Um, when she was growing up, um, and if for her 18th party, we'd have a, or 16th party, she'd have a party. For her 18th party, big marquee, she wanted a, a masked ball. For her 21st, the same. So there was always parties in our house and uh, she'd get in and help us. And from the time she was probably four, she's been in and out of the restaurant. I mean, yeah. I remember one day she came in and this gentleman came in. He said, I'm joining Mr. Murphy. And whoever was behind the desk said, no, Mr. Murphy hasn't arrived. And at four years old, she said, yes, he did. He's sitting on table six. So <laughs> she's always been very sharp and she's yeah. always been, you know, and um, I mean, she worked in Taste of Dublin for years and then she went traveling and she's been operations manager for brand events for the last five years. Yeah. And now she's going to go out on her own. So um, she'll still be doing what she does and what she 
loves. Um, I mean, what she did for her own wedding was up on evoke.ie. It was. And she, you know, as I said, we had very little input there. All she needed was the money. But she <laughs> wanted a big top. She wanted whatever. She organized it all. Spectacular, I have to say. She and did an amazing job. She did. And we got over there a few days beforehand. So we were the ones who were, Mom, I need you to sort the tables. Mom, we need an extra table. Dad, we need to do this, blah, blah, blah. So she knew what our strengths were. Mm-hmm. And she left us to organize that end of it. And um, she absolutely loves it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Pub in the Park travel all around the UK. And uh, so it's a setup. It's getting the whole thing done. And then it's the breakdown and going on to the next place. And I think she loves just the thrill of it all. Recreating. Yeah. Making yeah. the whole space. So creating other people's memories. I think that's the thing about, I mean, your own career and now your daughter. I think you guys are making the memories like in Le Crivian and and in your new place as well. People are going there for family occasions, whereas Sarah May is creating these big events where people are going on nights out that they'll remember when they're 70 and they'll, you know. Yeah, even the Christmas event she did last year was fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did that in Marlow. And um, it's amazing what can be done these days, even just with lights. Mm-hmm. And she's very good at what she does. And um, she's really enjoying it, yeah. you know. So that's, you know, they, they do say find something you enjoy um, as as your um, form of employment and you'll never work a day in your life. Yeah, well, you that, that is true. I have to say I've, I've been around the world backwards in my career and yeah. I have to say if once you enjoy getting up in the morning and going out, it, it's definitely worth the paycheck. Oh, well, I mean, I've done so much because of the shop. I mean, I worked in an office. I worked as a PA. I modeled for years and then I went back doing modeling as a, a plus size model when I was in my 40s. And wow. um, I mean, I've had so much fun because I've been brought up with the whole thing is to, you know, try it. Don't say you can't do it. Go out there and try it. If it doesn't suit you or if it makes you feel uncomfortable, OK, you've mm. tried it. Don't do it again. But I do think that people have to be more open. It's, you know, not I want to be. Yeah, it's, you know, people when they say I want to be whatever at 18, nine times out of 10, they turn out 30 being something completely different. But they've got to try all these different things on the way. And I also think that everybody, no matter what walk of life you're in, should work in a bar or a restaurant or a kitchen and should do some form of hospitality. Absolutely. It agree. makes you appreciate <laughs> human life and human behavior all the more. I think it makes you look at yourself as well a little bit and kind of reflect on, you know, how you kind of speak to other people. And, you know, I, I think, as you said earlier, around knowing the value of things as well. It really is important. Um, obviously yourself, Sarah May and Derry are v- a very tight group. Yeah. And, um, you know, you guys, you lost Andrew 11 years ago, I think. This It'll year, be 11 years right? in December, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, like that must have just been a, a complete game changer, life changer. I mean... Well, you never get over it. It's always there. I mean, I still have people telling me how sorry they are, which is really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you... Again, when you're in this industry, you have to have a public face. Yes. You know, you thank people, but you have to grieve in private because people. How did you do that when you like when he passed initially? Because it must have been absolutely so shocking and heartbreaking and it's devastating. How yeah. like, I mean, people obviously, you know, that it's it's hard when someone, especially when someone dies so tragically, it's hard to kind of bring it up. And when you guys went back to the restaurant and you saw your clients and you saw your, your customers once again. Well, now, in fairness, um, we had 45 people depending on us for a job. Mm-hmm. Number one. Number two, they were 
our extended family. Number three, business did fall off the side of a cliff um, yeah. because people felt that they couldn't, um, with lots of cancellations, that really? they, they couldn't uh, celebrate and couldn't, um, you know, uh, mark different occasions when we were in the depths of grief. And in fairness, that's the time when you need them most. And uh, after a couple of months, it was, um, what are we going to do? How are we going to do this? How are we going to get it out there that we're still open for business? So a friend of ours, Brian Kennedy, organized a whole crew to come in. Mm -hmm. And some people from the media, some people from radio, and basically said, you know, um, I'm organizing this. He said, they're all coming in. And he said, they're here to support you and to let everybody else know that you are open for business yeah. and that you want people to come in and that it's not just you and Ari and Sarah May, but you have... 45 other people yeah. that you that are depending on jobs here and that was a wonderful thing that he did I'll never forget him for it neither will Derry but it was a case of getting it out there saying please now is when they need you more yeah. than ever you know because I think that's what a lot of people who go through grief say that people are so there in the immediate aftermath but then what about three weeks later you know make a make a stew and leave it on the doorstep yeah you know six weeks six weeks later everybody goes back to what their normal is yeah and your new normal is completely different you don't know what it is I mean there's people say the seven stages of grief there's probably 107 I don't know everybody has their own way of doing it but you have to ne negotiate your way of getting through it and being with people that you know and that you love and that you work with every day and that understand and that knew him as well almost as well as you did makes it easier because mm. when you talk about him it's not a shock it's like oh yeah I remember when he did this and yeah. <laughs> do you remember when he made those cocktails and do you remember when he did his um a whole lot of the kids came in for work experience in transition year. His friends, yeah. you know, in school, they'd say they yeah. need to get work experience. So um, we had uh, bought the place next door and we hadn't got planning. So I sent him and his pals in to sort it out. And I said, no slacking. And, you know, you give them yeah. a few quid. And I went in and I thought the place looks amazing. Well done, lads. Brought them in their lunch, <laughs> did whatever. Didn't find out until he died that he'd paid a couple of uh, guys, kitchen porters to come in a couple of hours earlier <laughs> to help them to get it done as quickly as they did. But we didn't find all this That's out hilarious. until after he'd gone. Thinking yeah. outside the box for yeah. Plato. Oh, he definitely thought outside the box. Um, <laughs> and I mean, his his first love was was motor racing. Yeah. He, loved, he loved the rally driving. But again, all of those things. And you got to remember, there's still a huge stigma with suicide. Sure. People still think that it's contagious. And there's a lot of people that were wonderful. A lot of people that you didn't expect came along and were there to support you. And there are other people, maybe we expected too much, I don't know, but mm. they fell by the wayside. Wow. And um, it was almost as if, well, you know, we've we've got children, we've got whatever. This must be contagious and they avoid you like the like the plague. Wow. So it was um, difficult to negotiate. Yeah. But, you know, I had this lady in who said to me about it years later, she said her daughter's first child was Down syndrome. And she said, um, my daughter went into this estate with all these other mothers. And she said when her baby was born, she said there was people who lived next door who crossed the road to get over. And she said, you know, to not look at her child, to not look at her Gosh. child or not not congratulate her or yeah. not whatever. And I mean, a child is a child at the end of the day. Absolutely, yeah. And she said, I I understand what you're talking about. She said it was almost like a grieving process for my daughter because so many people avoided her. And um, it, I mean, that's shocking. Mm. But sometimes people don't know what to say. Yeah. Sometimes people um, don't know how to handle it. And that's perfectly understandable. But they don't have to say anything. A hand on your shoulder, a nod, a hug. 
you know, um, just I'm there for you. Mm. But to ignore you or to avoid you or whatever is it's very difficult to take when you're feeling so vulnerable anyway. I mean, we're the best country in the world for doing funerals and for doing wakes. But unfortunately, we don't always follow through. Mm. So um, if I was to say anything to anybody, regardless of whether your child or your husband or daughter or relative dies by suicide or not, there's still that grieving process. And I think people should think a little bit more. But again, you know, it's something that we learn as we go along. I think this kind of brings us full circle and I'm probably back to my last question, which you've I mean, you've covered off so much in your life and between Andrew's death and and, you know, the highs of your your early days on radio and modeling. And what would you rate your life out of 10? Oh, gosh. Um, If you were to take Andrew out of the equation, probably a nine. But because that is something that we will never get over and um, has been so traumatic, I don't know, maybe a five. Right. Because when something like I mean, that leaves a great big hole in your life. Yeah. And especially when you see all the kids now his age, they're getting engaged, they're getting married, they're getting whatever. It's it's a whole new thing that you know what you're missing out on. And I'm delighted for all these kids. They're wonderful, Mm. wonderful young men. But it's to see what's going on in their lives. And, you know, it's it's it does definitely leave a great gaping hole. Mm. But as far as I mean. I'm I'm not done yet. Absolutely. I would like to <laughs> I don't, I, but by the looks I, of you I say you I would like to I you. mean I, I would like to do it. I mean I, I mean even doing the midday show in Elaine show. I mean mm. I did that for over 20 years. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Really loved it. When they pulled the plug on it, it was it was like again, it was like a death in the family. Oh yeah. Because everybody got to know everybody so well and everybody was I mean everybody got on really really well. So hopefully there's more opportunities out there for an old lady like me. Oh. And um <laughs> hopefully as I said radio was always my first love will probably always be my last love, but I haven't really pursued it at the moment. Maybe I will. Yeah, you never know. You never know. Maybe, maybe, (laughs) maybe. But um, no, I'm not finished yet. There's still a few things I'd like to do. There's still a few places I'd like to see. And and Derry's the same. And, uh, you know, just because you're you've done one thing and you're moving on to something else. I've always felt that you have to look at the world without blinkers yeah and you've got to see what's happening in the right hand corner as well as the left hand corner of your eye and see what catches your eye and see what you think you'd like to do because you know the world is your oyster no matter whether you're 16 or 60 I think if people look at it that way I mean people retiring at 65 when they're not ready is not fair yeah I don't think I'll ever be ready I think my mom stopped working in the shop when she was 77 or 78 Mm. when she had her second hip replaced and I think I'd I'm hoping I'd be like that that I still have something to offer and still have something to contribute. I can't imagine you being one of these people <laughs> who sits on the couch just looking out the window all day. Sally Ann, thank you so much for taking the time to come My in. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Evoke Inspire, Her Business Empowering Women in Diverse Professions podcast, sponsored by hermoney.ie. Be sure to subscribe for more inspiring stories and expert insights on thriving in various industries. Remember, financial empowerment begins with knowledge. Hermoney.ie helps you take control of your financial future. So why not visit hermoney.ie for more information? Until next time, stay empowered and inspired.